Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, September 7th, 2023. The only podcast that separates the facts from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Cuba allegedly uncovers a human trafficking ring linked to the Russia-Ukraine war. France is reportedly discussing withdrawal from Niger. Georgia's attorney general charges 61 cop city protesters with racketeering. At least 16 are dead in a Russian strike on Donetsk. Enrique Tario of the Proud Boys is sentenced to 22 years in prison. Moderna says its updated vaccine is ready for new COVID subvariants. The U.S. will investigate chips in Huawei's new smartphone. Deadly floods impact Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria. The U.N. says dredging sand is destroying the ocean floor. And the U.S. is investigating in surveillance clothing, including socks, underwear, pants, and shirts. In our top story, Cuba uncovers an alleged Russia-Ukraine human trafficking ring. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Al Jazeera, BBC News, NPR Online News, Reuters, and NBC. Cuba's foreign ministry said on Monday that it had discovered a human trafficking network aimed at recruiting Cubans to fight as mercenaries for Russia's war in Ukraine. In a statement, the Cuban authorities said they were working to neutralize and dismantle the network they claim was enlisting Cubans in Russia and within the Caribbean nation. Though Cuba, traditionally an ally of Russia, didn't specify who was behind the network, it claimed that Havana doesn't form part of the conflict in Ukraine. The Cuban foreign ministry stated that the government is acting vigorously and has begun prosecuting those suspected of being involved in human trafficking to help Russia in the war. The news comes after a Russian newspaper reported last May that several Cuban citizens had signed contracts with Russia's armed forces in exchange for Russian citizenship. Though the Kremlin has not commented on the allegations, Russia announced plans to increase its forces size by more than 30 percent to 1.5 million combat personnel last year. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with a narrative A provided by the New York Times. While Russia enjoys Cuba's unconditional support in its clash with the West, Cuba is not part of the war in Ukraine and wouldn't make such claims against its ally unless it was seriously perturbed by the evidence it has seen. CNN gives us narrative B. Though Cuba provided little information to back up its statement and Russia has yet to respond, the allegations are a rare moment of friction between an increasingly isolated Russia and an impoverished Cuba. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the folks at Metaculous Prediction Community. Here's one that says that there's a 50% chance that there will be at least four communist states across the world by 2050. France is reportedly in talks for a possible withdrawal from Niger. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, France 24, DW.com, and Washington Post. On Tuesday, France's ambassador to Mali and Senegal, citing unnamed sources, announced that France and Niger's military are in talks to partially withdraw the 1,500 French troops stationed in the West African nation. French outlet Le Monde reported that neither the number of French soldiers involved nor the timing of their departure has been decided, adding that France has been in communication with regular army officials with whom France has long cooperated as opposed to the coup leaders. French Defense Minister Sébastien Lecornu stated that talks were in progress about easing movements of French military resources in Niger, 
with an anonymous source within the French ministry saying that French forces have been immobilized since anti-terrorist cooperation was suspended following the military takeover. According to Le Monde, some French troops could be redeployed to other regional countries, such as neighboring Chad, while others could return to France. Relations between Niger and France, the country's former colonial power and traditional ally, quickly deteriorated after Paris declared the new military leaders illegitimate, calling for former President Mohamed Bazoum to be reinstated as the country's premier. Since 2021, there have been several coups in West Africa, including in Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, Chad, and Sudan. The most recent, in Niger, prompted the Economic Community of West African States, or the ECOWAS, a 15-member bloc to which Niger belonged, to threaten military intervention to oust the country's new military leadership. Adam just laid out the facts of that story. Now we're going to focus on some of the spins that have emerged. Here is a pro-establishment narrative, and it's coming from France 24. All parties involved in the current political crisis in Niger favor a diplomatic solution and have urged the coup leaders to reinstate Bazoum and tell their troops to return to their bases. The wave of authoritarian and anti-democratic coups in West Africa could destabilize the region and a potential withdrawal of French forces would be a serious escalation in this crisis. Well, that spin's going to be followed up with an establishment critical narrative provided by RT. Niger is a sovereign state, and if the country's leadership wants a French withdrawal, then that is what must be done. For too long, Western powers have felt as if they have the right to dictate the status quo in Africa and other global South nations. However, times have changed, and France will continue to lose influence in its former colonies. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 10% chance that ECOWAS will intervene militarily in Niger before October 1st, 2023. Wow. That's coming right up. There's a chance, huh? There's a slight chance. They must have gotten some satellite footage of them, like, uh, handing out flyers, maybe, or something That's like exactly that. That's exactly what it is, yep. You know, it's just a 10, just a 10% chance, yeah. you know, nothing super committed. <laughs> committed. <laughs> They were like, get the ECOWAS gang. ECOWAS, shape of a giant hammer. Each 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 South African nation forms like an either a leg or a foot or the head. You know? It's like Voltron. The ECOWAS. 61 stop cop city protesters have been indicted for racketeering. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Washington Post, New York Times, and Daily Caller. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr on Tuesday announced 61 people had been indicted on racketeering charges related to a state investigation into protests against a planned police and firefighter training facility near Atlanta. The indictment describes the defendants, who publicly demonstrated against the construction of what critics call Cop City, as militant anarchists who are part of a movement that dates back to protests in 2020. Critics, however, argue that the 85-acre facility will hurt the environment and be used to militarize Atlanta police. All defendants have been charged under Georgia's Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, a tool typically used against street gangs and public corruption, but was recently used to indict former President Donald Trump in the Georgia election case. 
Carr accuses the defendants, many of whom are members of Defend Atlantis Forest, of several criminal acts, including throwing Molotov cocktails at police officers and setting fire to construction equipment. The indictment lists 255 incidents between May 2020 and August 2023. Previously, the protests increased in intensity after protester Manuel Esteban Pais Terran was killed in January when he was shot by state troopers who were clearing demonstrators from a wooded area. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation said the troopers fired in self-defense. Thank you, Eric. There's a lot to unpack in that story. We're going to start this off with a politically motivated Democratic narrative provided by Rolling Stone. Carr is blatantly criminalizing political dissent and violating the First Amendment rights of activists in a move that could set a dangerous precedent nationwide. It's not surprising, though, considering the brute force tactics and spying the state has done to snuff out these protests and derail a referendum campaign against Atlanta's cop city. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from PJ Media. This isn't about politics. It's about the law. Contrary to the mainstream narrative, Carr is using these indictments to hold actual criminals accountable. Yet the woke left, blind to its own hypocrisy, given its unfounded prosecution of Trump and its supporters, is disregarding the case's merits. At least 16 are dead in a Russian strike in Donetsk. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Yukonska Pravda, Ukraine Forum, and Guardian. At least 16 civilians were killed after Russia struck a crowded market in the Donetsk city of Konstantinivka on Wednesday. Local officials added that at least 31 civilians were reported injured at the stage, with searches in the rubble continuing. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky described it as a terrorist attack in a post on Telegram. Zelensky said a regular market, shops, a pharmacy, people who did nothing wrong, many wounded. Unfortunately, the number of casualties and the injured may rise. The strike took place as the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, which was also targeted by Russia earlier in the day. City officials said that there were no casualties or damage to civilian infrastructure from the missile attack, but said that a number of businesses and vehicles were damaged by falling debris. Russia has also targeted the port city of Odessa, where one civilian was reported killed. Two further civilians were reported injured in the Zaporizhia region after missile strikes there. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from Ukrainska Pravda. This is yet another demonstration of Russian terror tactics. These were ordinary civilians going about their normal business when Russia mercilessly decided to take their lives away. This is another reminder of who Ukraine is dealing with. And that's countered with a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. Russia has repeatedly said that it does not target civilians. All strikes are directed at military targets, including military warehouses, fuel depots, and training facilities. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, either Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea as independent before the year 2024. An ex-Proud Boy boss has been jailed for 22 years over January 6th. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, NPR Online News, Yahoo Finance, Independent, and Associated Press. 
Former leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, has been jailed for 22 years for his role in the January 6, 2021 riots at the U.S. Capitol. Just one of more than 1,100 cases concerning the protests of the 2020 election. His sentence currently sits as the longest one served in relation to the event. Although prosecutors had asked U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly to sentence Tario to 33 years in prison. In May, Tario was convicted of seditious conspiracy, obstructing an official proceeding, conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging their duties, obstruction of law enforcement during a civil disorder, and destruction of government property with a value of over $1,000. Although Tario wasn't in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, prosecutors alleged Tario set up a ministry of self-defense while sending and receiving hundreds of encrypted messages over a plan to storm the Capitol and create a revolution. Kelly described Tario as the ultimate leader of the riots, with the former Proud Boys leader also the first to be convicted of sedition without being present at the riots. Tario had been arrested on January 4th for riots occurring in Washington, D.C. on December 12th of 2020. Tario's prison term tops the 18-year sentences given to both Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and former Proud Boys leader Ethan Nordine. Eric, thank you for the facts. As you can imagine, this is a politically motivated story. We've got a Democratic narrative starting it off, and that's been written by CNN. While the demise of the Proud Boys is a necessary victory for democracy and the rule of law, more must be done to protect the integral pillars of American society. The sentencing of white supremacists and far-right actors isn't enough to suppress their resurgence, and structural responses to ensure that such a domestic terror event doesn't happen again have so far not been implemented. Consequently, the U.S. currently stands at a vital crossroads as the 2024 presidential election looms ever closer. A Republican narrative is coming from PJ Media. It's unconscionable that a political protester who wasn't even in the physical location of a riot, can get 22 years in prison, while the average murderer gets sentenced to only 20 years. The weaponized Department of Justice is resolved on sending a message to anyone who dares to step out of line and challenge the system, even if that means redefining terms like terrorism and sedition. With the media in lockstep, a distorted narrative about the events of January 6th is being pushed. And these spins are going to wrap up with a nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 26% chance that the U.S. government will invoke the Insurrection Act before 2025. One thing they've got to do, though, they've got to reword this one charge here, this conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging his duties. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, they've got to they've got to reword that somehow. That just right. that just doesn't sound right. It, <laughs> I know that's what I was thinking. It sounds like, no, you can't use the bathroom. Semantics can make a huge difference. <laughs> Moderna states that their updated COVID jabs are effective against the new subvariant. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, The Hill, and ABC News. Pharmaceutical company Moderna on Wednesday announced that its updated COVID vaccine should be effective against the highly mutated BA286 subvariant. Moderna said its jab produced an 8.7-fold increase in neutralizing antibodies in that subvariant, which has increased concern over resurgence of infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, which described the new subvariant as having multiple genetic differences from previous versions of the virus, reported nine cases of BA286 have been found in the U.S., U.K., Denmark, South Africa, and Israel as of August 23rd. 
The variant, known as Pirola, has been designated by the World Health Organization, or the WHO, as a variant under monitoring because it might have mutations that give it an advantage over others. Moderna's new jab is scheduled to become available as soon as September 13th, after the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, approves it. Then the CDC's Independent Advisory Council will determine the recommendations for who will be eligible to take it, with the CDC director providing final sign-off. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. Our first spin is a democratic narrative, and it's coming from NBC. This is excellent public health news because the updated Moderna jabs seem ready to protect individuals against all the newest COVID variants. Vaccines and booster shots were key in moving the world beyond being restricted by COVID, and they continue to be the best way to prevent death and severe illness and make sure life remains normal. And Breitbart's going to wrap it up with a Republican narrative. Even after the fully vaccinated and twice-boosted First Lady Jill Biden tested positive again for COVID, President Biden and the Democrats seem ready to crank up rhetoric around vaccine requirements and mask mandates. These sentiments aren't going to sit well with the American people, especially with the 2024 election just around the corner. In tech news, the U.S. plans to probe chips that have been used in Huawei's new smartphone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times, Bloomberg, The Telegraph, South China Morning Post, Guardian, and Reuters. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Tuesday that the U.S. is trying to obtain details about the computer chip powering Huawei's newly released Mate 60 Pro smartphone, which has been touted as a PRC chip breakthrough despite U.S. restrictions. This comes as a third-party analysis claimed the device is powered by the Kirin 9000S chip, a new 7-nanometer processor made by China's top chipmaker, Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corp., or SMIC. The analysis concluded that the chip was manufactured using extreme ultraviolet lithography, a cutting-edge, closely guarded technique developed by Dutch company ASML that China has mostly been blocked from accessing. The report from U.S. semiconductor research firm Tech Insights has fueled speculations that Shanghai-based SMIC could have helped Huawei to clandestinely circumvent U.S. tech sanctions. Both companies are on the U.S. entity list. Huawei started selling its latest flagship 5G smartphone last week, coinciding with a visit by U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo to China. No information on the power of its chipset was provided in the specifications. Meanwhile, Reuters reported Tuesday that Beijing plans to launch a new state-backed investment fund aiming to raise around $40 billion for its semiconductor sector in a boost to catch up with the U.S. and other rivals. All right, Eric, those facts are going to kick off a narrative spin, a pro-China narrative to be exact, provided by China Daily. It's certainly too early to assert that Huawei's Mate 60 Pro shows that China will be able to continue bypassing U.S. sanctions. But this latest smartphone does hint that the PRC's domestic semiconductor industry may have innovation capabilities to break new ground. U.S. tech sanctions have failed to curb Chinese tech development while simultaneously harming American companies. The anti-China narrative comes from the Washington Post. Though indeed a breakthrough, this latest development doesn't come as a surprise given that older manufacturing tools are still capable of making more advanced semiconductors. Given the current restrictions, U.S. export curbs related to China's chip industry will likely prevent its chipmakers from going beyond 5-nanometer processors, while foreign rivals will advance. 
If not, the West must further tighten up its chip-related sanctions on the PRC. And the story's going to wrap up with a nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 50% chance that chips covered by the 2022 U.S. export controls will be exported to China before 2032. You know, all of these smartphones and the speeds and all that good stuff. I mean, I haven't upgraded my rotary phone in quite some time. I'm not even sure how many nanometers it has. What about yours? Isn't that uh, when you dial the four, that's a nanometer, and then like the four to the eight, that's a nan when it goes all the way around? That's the, probably it, yeah. See. That's one that's four yeah, nanometers. I think mine needs... I think that's yeah. how it works, something like yep. that. Do you still have the power crank on yours, the little crank where you have to... Actually, that thing to wind it up no, I've got you can use it? No, I've automated it. I did a retrofit uh, generator on the side of it. It's really cool. You should get oh, one. Oh, so you just push the button. Like, Is it gas-powered? Is that gas-powered? Actually, it's a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> Deadly floods strike Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, CNN, IranPress.com, The Weather Channel, and New York Times. At least seven people have died and four others are missing after torrential rains inundated Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria, causing significant flooding. The storm dubbed Storm Daniel has meandered slowly across southeastern Europe, dumping excessive rain in a 24-hour period. The system is expected to move southwest over the Mediterranean, where heavy precipitation warnings are posted through Wednesday. Ali Yerlikaya, Turkey's interior minister, said floodwaters swept through a campsite housing 12 vacationers near the Bulgarian border. After two campers were found deceased, search and rescue operations continued for those who were unaccounted for. Spain also experienced significant flooding from Daniel, and a wet, stagnant weather pattern could last into next week. Rescue operations worked to save residents from rooftops, while a 10-year-old boy in Madrid clung to a tree for eight hours while awaiting rescue. The devastating rains and floodings come as Greece continues to battle against wildfires that ripped through the Evros region, killing at least 20 people. The country's fire service has been active in suppressing the spreading blazes and now rescuing residents from flooded homes. Kyriakos Mitsotakis, Greece's prime minister, attributed the severe weather occurrences of both the wildfires and the heavy rainfall to climate change, saying that the coming summers are likely to be more difficult. Adam just presented the facts, and here are the spins. We begin with an establishment-critical narrative coming from Clean Energy Wire. While climate change is impacting the whole world, the Mediterranean is a hot spot because it's warming at a much faster rate. The impacts are evident in the increasing wildfires and extreme weather events. A series of bad planning decisions made by previous administrations is proving to be costly to Greek people in terms of the loss of life and property. The 13 regional governments of Greece must take the initiative and chart a direct and cohesive course correction if preparation and adaptation are to be achieved. That's going to be followed up with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Politico. Greece has been under fire for lagging behind in climate change action, and they've now stepped up to the plate, recognizing that previous governments have failed. Prime Minister Mitsotakis has taken drastic action to bring on a climate crisis and civil protection minister, a rare role in the EU. Following several years of extreme weather events, it's the priority of the Greek government to understand climate science, mitigate impacts, and effectively respond to climate change-induced disasters. 
The nerds from Metaculus are giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that the atmospheric CO2 concentration will be at least 435.5 parts per million in 2030. They need to call EcoWAS <laughs> to come save them. Form of a giant sponge. EcoWAS assemble. <laughs> right. According to the United Nations, sand dredging is destroying the seafloor. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Fizz.org, and Guardian. According to a new report published by the United Nations Environment Program, or UNEP, on Tuesday, about 6 billion tons of sand is dredged from the world's oceans every year, making sand the world's second most widely used natural resource, following closely behind water. Previously, the UN called for a ban on beach extraction to avoid what it called a, quote, sand crisis, as demand for sand surged to 50 billion tons a year. Sand is essential for making glass, concrete, and other construction materials. The latest warning comes with the launch of the UNEP's Marine Sand Watch, a data platform jointly funded by the Swiss government that uses artificial intelligence to track and monitor sand dredging activities. Pascal Peduzzi, director of the UNEP's analytics center, Grid Geneva, further warned that the dredging of sand, crucial to maintaining the structure and function of coastal and marine ecosystems, is growing well beyond the rate at which it's being replenished from rivers in some areas. The hotspots for sand dredging identified by Marine Sandwatch, using data from 2012 to 2019, include the North Sea, Southeast Asia, and the U.S.'s East Coast. Meanwhile, the report found that China, the U.S., the Netherlands, and Belgium have some of the world's most active and advanced dredging industries. Thank you, Eric. Nature is providing us with a Narrative A on the story. Sand dredging is the world's most profitable industry, responsible for 85% of all mineral extraction. Soaring demand for construction, population growth, and urbanization means the activity is potentially destructive to the marine environment and biodiversity. The world must better manage marine sand resources to reduce the impacts of shallow sea mining. Geneva Solutions gives us Narrative B. Sand extraction is necessary to keep global sea transportation channels and ports safe for navigation. Most countries, especially the U.S., ensure that dredging operations are timely and cost-effective and meet and exceed all environmental protection laws. Pressuring the industry is unfair as most sand dredging activities are pursued with due regard for sustainability. I can understand the negative impact as far as like changing the topography of the seafloor could be negative to the marine life there. But I'm also thinking about it on this edge. Isn't there an issue with the with the sea levels rising because of climate change, melting the polar ice cap and all that such? Right. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and we used to like dig and make trenches and mess with, you know, sandcastles. When you dig a dig, dig a deeper hole, you could hold more water, Right. Well, that would I would think that would cause the sea level to decrease. Exactly. If you're creating more space for water to go to. So they need to work with the climate change. People find, okay, where are the parts in the world where the sea level has risen too much? Off of Florida. All right. right. We dig up a little, you know, you know, yeah. you, know you add, you put the sand on the, on the land. So you raise up the land and you lower, lower the, the sea, sea and then the, there you yep. go. Man, look at you solving the world. You are seriously solving the world's problems. I got it all figured out. Next. <laughs> The U.S. is investing $22 million in surveillance clothing. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Business Insider, and the Times of India. According to a report published by The Intercept, which cites an August 22nd press release from the U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, or IARPA, the agency's research and development arm, the federal government is investing $22 million in clothing that, quote, can record audio, video, and geolocation data. The program, called the Smart Electricity Powered and Networked Textile Systems, or Smart ePants, represents the largest single investment to develop active smart textiles, or AST, that feel, move, and function like any garment. Potential clothing items include socks, underwear, shirts, and pants. Under the program, contracts have been awarded to five defense contractors. The value of the contracts for three of the contracts have not been disclosed. The government program's press release said intelligence community staff will be able to record information from their environment hands-free, without the need to wear uncomfortable, bulky, and rigid devices. Their use could include in dangerous, high-stress environments such as crime scenes and arms control inspections. If successful, the clothing could be used by government entities such as the Department of Defense and first responders at the Department of Homeland Security, among other intelligence agencies and first responders. This is only the latest attempt by the U.S. to develop cutting-edge spyware clothing, such as a 2021 project to create a programmable fiber to store, analyze, and transmit the activities of the user. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from DNI. This program is simply an attempt to comfortably integrate already known technology into the work clothes of America's defense, first responder, and intelligence agencies. The safety of the men and women on the front lines is the number one priority, which is why the U.S. government is rolling out this innovation in wearable tech. And our podcast is going to wrap up with an establishment critical narrative provided by Intercept. With all the biometric data technology entering the commercial market today, everyone should know how powerful it can be in the hands of the U.S. government. Imagine how much of our lives could be observed and tracked if the tech industry and the intelligence agencies began implementing the same technology into our everyday products, including garments. Eric, I mean, this is a cool story and all. I mean, the, the, the kind of, the, you know, the James Bond stuff. I'm kind of disappointed. I thought the, uh, with the title, I thought like uh, someone in the U.S. had $22 million to go thrift store shopping. Yeah. I thought they were going to update like their surveillance clothes and undercover clothing. Right. They were just going to hit, you know, goodwills across the right, nation. Right, right, right. Absolutely. You know, I, I predict this going the same way that the Humvee went. You know, that went kind of in a consumer model with the, with the Hummer. Do you remember the Hummer? That yes. Came out um, yes. I, I remember the, hum, I remember the Humvee. I'm just, yeah. I'm just thinking that, that we're going to see clothes like these in Target next year. But that's what people are afraid of. They're going to put the, with, we're going to have smart e-pants and the government is going to track us. They're going to put, they're going to put wires in our underwear. Well, they already track us through our phones. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, but I can put my phone down. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, September 7th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more about the Verity Podcast at verity.news. 
can also download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.